Hey, everybody. This is Michael with the Left Unread podcast. As you know, we are here to uplift black and brown voices, to talk about black and brown books, and to be a menace until the publishing industry makes space for everybody. And as always, I am here with my co-host, Lonnie. How you doing, Lonnie? Hello, I am Lonnie, and I am here, and I'm excited because we're going to talk about a book that I'm going to be learning about today. <laughs> I don't think you could have said that weirder if you tried, Lonnie, but I, I think I loved it, so let's keep it. Um, and for everybody at home, it's probably a surprise to you that we're dropping a second episode this week. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we use these last couple of days of Black History Month to celebrate some of the legends. Um, and today actually marks 18 years since we lost Her Majesty Octavia Butler. So we wanted to make sure that we dropped an extra special episode tonight, um, just talking about her, commemorating her, um, giving her her flowers, and talking about one of her more notable works, Kindred. Um, and it's also a special episode because two of my good friends are joining us. We have Cece, Black Boy Joy from TikTok, and we have Book Talk favorite Lee. Do you two want to introduce yourselves? I'll let Cece go first. Oh, God. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Cece. Uh, I am uh, Black Boy Joy on TikTok, B-L-K-B-O-Y.J-O-Y on TikTok. Um, and I love Octavia Butler. I took a class on her and she personally um has made a lot of impact on my life through her writings. Um and yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Mm, I don't know how to follow that up. Um well I'm Lee. I'm books with Lee on TikTok. That's books.with.lee. Um the, the books will leave without the dots was, was taken at the time. Um and I'm also books with Lee on Instagram. Octavia Butler has also been a huge impact on my reading journey. My, I, I love speculative fiction, and I feel like she's the mother of speculative fiction. Without knowing her work, there's no way to, to know the people who follow her. So I'm so excited to talk about Octavia today. Thank you both for being here. We are so excited to have you, and we are even more excited to give the queen her flowers and to talk about what I consider to be one of her most devastating works, Kindred, which if you haven't read it, make sure you stop the podcast, go read the book, and come back so that you can really enjoy this conversation because there will be spoilers. But if you're not going to listen to me, here's a little summary. This book follows a modern-day black woman who is transported into the antebellum South, where she becomes a slave on the same plantation as her maternal ancestor and the paternal ancestor, who happens to be the slave master's son. So let's get into it. Lee, uh, you have told me that Kindred is one of your favorite books of all time. Can you mm -hmm. tell us about your experience with this book, what it was like reading that for the first time? Yes. Uh, when I first picked up Kendra, I'm going to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about Octavia E. Butler. I just, it was a book that was recommended to me and I picked it up. Um, when I started to read it and I realized like this book, this, this wonderful book didn't necessarily fit a genre, right? And I started to unpack it and, and listen to it and all the themes that Octavia Butler was able to put into this work. Um, it just defied Anything I've ever read with the book, she was able to put in so much and still have it be so impactful and that it takes skill to do that. Um, and from there, I just started to read all of her other works and they're just as great. Yeah, absolutely. And you said, uh, Cece, you said that you took a class on Octavia Butler. You've read this one, right? Yes. So I took a class, uh, shout out to Dr. Kendra Parker. Um, I took Actually, the class that I took on Octavia Butler, I took after a class that I took on Afrofuturism. 
Um, so just kind of, you know, got to deep dive into her work. Um, and I believe Kindred was one of the first uh, things that we read, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and same, it would you just kind of get taken for a whirlwind immediately. And I'm someone who has struggled with reading a lot. I used to read a lot in middle school. Um, and then, you know, eventually the ADHD started kicking my ass. So <laughs> it, it became a bit of a chore to like sit down and read. But Kindred was one of the first books where the for the first time in a while I was on the edge of my seat. Mm. Um, and I was just completely engrossed in this woman's story and what was going to happen next and the conversations that we had the next class after we read the next section. Um, so yeah, I yes, I have read Kindred. <laughs> I don't remember who put me onto this book. It might have been Yuli, um, but I don't know. It, it was you. Um, it was but I me. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you getting mad at me when I told you I hadn't read it, but I, mm -hmm. I couldn't remember where I'd heard about it. But I remember picking this book up and within a few paragraphs being like, oh, this is a different book. This is a different mm -hmm. kind of book. I'm not the kind of reader who puts a book down because it gets heavy. I live for heavy books. Mm. But this book, this book, I had to dog ear and throw it a couple of times. There were just moments where I was like, I'm not, not only am I not okay, but I don't know how to feel about the fact that somebody had the nerve to write this book. <laughs> like, mm. it's, it's like, thank you so much, Octavia Butler. And how dare you? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, and I remember I growing up, I have obviously we knew about slavery. We knew about the trauma that our ancestors experienced, but I don't know that I had ever actually understood until this concept came to me, this concept of mm. what would it be like to go back and experience it with a modern perspective, with the hope of knowing it's gonna end change anything, would mm. having access to the information that we have, to the tools that we have, to the knowledge we have, would that mean anything different? That was devastating for me. Did, did you wrestle with that internally while you were reading it? I think, you know, I definitely did. I mean, even just you bringing those questions up now, it brought up some of those same questions for me as I'm reading it, you know, what what would that have been like? And I think that's what makes Octavia Butler so wonderful is that she took these these modern ideas and brought you, you know, back in time. Or she talked about some of the issues like, you know, gender, race, power, all those concepts in this story. You know, but I I, I definitely grapple with those questions. I don't know the answer to them. Um, but it was definitely stuff things that I I thought about as I was reading the book. I actually had a commenter. Um, I, I talked to Cece and Lonnie about this, but I haven't talked to you about it. I had a commenter come to my page and tell me that Kindred was a horrible book because. <laughs> nah. Mm -mm. I can't see her face right now, but I can. And it is appropriate to what I said. Blasphemy. It's blasphemy. <laughs> he said it was a horrible book because she went back and didn't do enough to liberate the slaves with modern knowledge. You want to guess what race this man was? <laughs> That's interesting. Because, like, Michael, we talked about this before. The One of the core pieces of the story is the inevitability of it all. Mm. Is the fact that no matter what, yeah. there is no happy ending. And even when Dana gets back to the present time and she stops traveling back to see her ancestors her ancestors' stories are lost to time. She tries mm. to look for them and cannot figure out what happened to them 
after she left. But even though we know that that ending is inevitable, she never stops trying to save them. Every mm-hmm. step of the way, she's trying to save everyone, including Rufus. Um, so to 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 frame it as if, well, she she didn't save them, so it it just can't be a good book. You miss the entire nuance of blackness, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And for those of you listening, Rufus is uh, the the slave master's son who ends up being her paternal ancestor. And I think we've talked about this before, even in relation to um, the solidarity that black people should be able to have with white poor people. And the fact that they experience a lot of the same oppression that we do, a lot of the same marginalization that we do, but they have access to the privilege of hope Mm -hmm. that we don't because we understand the inevitability of our oppression. And they don't. For For so many white people, even in their marginalization, they are always looking mm. forward to the day when it will end because the American dream mm. is a real possibility for them. And that is something that I've seen with a lot of white people as they engage with this book. It's, well, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? Because she could have gotten out of this. That's not how black people, mm-hmm. that's not how our, our reality works. There is no next mm, step. Right. There is how do I survive this moment? Mm-hmm. That's deep. Right? And it, it, speaking of Rufus, speaking of Rufus, and once again, for listeners, that is the slave master's son when the story begins. Um, and the story, throughout the story, she's going back and forth. Um, there's going to be spoilers, everybody. So she's she's going back in time, and then she's ending up back in the present and going back in time again. And throughout this entire book, we see Rufus go from being an innocent little boy who exists in a system of oppression to becoming mm. the active oppressor, all while there is a free Black woman in his ear. And I think that was one of the hardest parts of this story. But for me... Reading that was not as hard as watching the way that white readers engaged with Rufus in their reviews and in the way that they talked in our comment sections and seeing that for so many of them, Rufus was the center of the story. When when I was reading the story, Rufus was an inevitability. I never for one moment thought, oh my goodness, she's going to change that boy. What was it like for you engaging with that character? Heartbreaking because of what you were just talking about, the conversation that exists between um, Black people and poor white people of something is also being stolen from you, and I just need you to wake up and realize it. It's heartbreaking to watch Rufus, who starts out just as anyone else, just a child. You know, I'm a teacher. I am watching my Mm. kids all the time fall into traps that the system has set for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he falls into it and he never gets out because it's a system that benefits him. Exactly. He never gets out because he doesn't have a reason to ever yeah. want to. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. that there is a free black woman who is the closest person to him because neither of his parents care about him. He, she is the only person around him that seems to give a fuck what happens to him. Mm-hmm. And it still isn't enough because he has no reason to ever want to leave the situation that he's in. Nope. And I think that's such an important aspect of systems of oppression, something for us to really grapple with um, when we exist in a privileged position in a system of oppression is that, first of all, mm-hmm. this system is overwhelming to everyone. 
This system is not only designed to oppress victims, it is also designed to turn the privileged into monsters. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a loss. And I feel like there are not enough people that are really grappling with how much they lose when that system is successful in turning Mm -hmm. them into a monster. Hold on, I have to sit with that. I was just about to say that. I need to sit with that. Hearing that is just, wow. It's a devastating reality. And that was really my experience with Rufus is I took both away as a black person, seeing him be turned into a monster that would harm me, but also as a man, seeing mm-hmm. the way that those systems turn me into a monster with indifference of privilege. It's such a difficult concept to wrestle with and not enough of us actually do because it doesn't feel bad to be a monster when there's nobody mm-hmm. to call you on it. Mm, wow. Mm. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought of, I mean, as you're speaking right now, you know, some of the themes that you guys are, are you're pointing out definitely are things that I thought about, you know, but I hear, as I hear you bring up, you know, these systems and the oppression and, and how it changes people into monsters is definitely something that it makes me want to pick up Kindred and reread it myself, you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, I mean, I've already read it like, I don't know, over 10 times probably at this point, but even just going back and, and, and looking at some of those themes and really grappling with what you just said was just powerful to me. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that experience was like for Dana. That's something I think about a lot of, uh, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, Lonnie, about how often black women specifically are put in a position to be the most harmed by a system of oppression, but also have to be the only one pressing against the design of that system. Like the only one in this, in this story that is trying to Mm -hmm. help Rufus is Dana. And it's like, it's not even to her benefit because her life is going to be pretty bad if Rufus breaks out of the system, actually. And what if he did break out of the system? What would that look like? I think she never exists is the answer. That's what I was going to say. I don't know that there is a way for him to, to or picture what that would look like because there wouldn't be a her, right? There wouldn't even be this story. So it's, it's hard to think about this character pushing, pushing back or, or breaking out of that system. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's even... Like that thought is so devastating to me too, because one of the things that we see happen throughout the story, which Octavia Butler is a freaking genius, mm-hmm. um, is that while we spend the whole story watching her try to influence him, the only one whose moral line shifts is hers. Mm-hmm. Because she's put in a position where she has to not only allow him to become a monster, mm-hmm. but has to help him do it successfully. This is a devastating story. Yeah. devastating story yeah and michael you actually watched the show right the show that came I out did. what was it last year when you were yeah. grappling like oh i haven't read a book i haven't read kindred and I, I really want to read it and you had first watched the show so i'm curious your experience of even just like how did that sit with you watching the show first did you have a different experience as far as like your thoughts and, and feelings versus reading the book and then and then reading the book because i had a different experience having read the book and then mm-hmm. watch the, the series. I think the series failed to give me a real, it failed to devastate me in the mm-hmm. way this book did. It was mm-hmm. a good show. Um, I think that as far as slavery representation, it did just as good as other shows, but it failed to really force me into Dana's shoes the way that, that Octavia Butler, you, you just can't, you can't replicate Octavia Butler. It, yeah. it was noticeable. Like once I read the books, I was like, oh, it's clear she wasn't in the writer's room for this show. Like it's clear. Mm-hmm. I would also say, and speaking as someone, I didn't watch the whole series. I maybe watched the first one or two episodes. 
they failed to put you in Dana's shoes because they were too busy trying to put you into Kevin's. Just saying. Mm-hmm. And for context, listeners, Kevin is Dana's husband in the book and her booty call in the show. So in the show, it was different than the movie. Oh, I mean, I know they're different, but yes. Yeah. In the in the show, they had just met for a hookup, and then she gets taken into the past and comes back and takes him back with her, which was so was so. <sighs> It was so frustrating because him being desperately in love with his wife was such mm-hmm. a different dynamic than her just being a notch on his, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like no investment in her, in her, in the show. So like mm. his development doesn't make sense then. Mm-hmm. But Kevin in the book, he is a progressive. He is a liberal white man who has married a black woman in the seventies. And um, so taking him into Annabelle himself, that, that, forces him to decide if he believes what he believes. Mm-hmm. You know who Kevin reminds me of now that I'm thinking about it? And in the book specifically, Kevin reminds me of Agent Ross specifically in Wakanda Forever. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> what I loved about <laughs> what I love specifically about the way Agent Ross is framed in Wakanda Forever, even down to the way his character is first shown on screen is Oh, you are so incredibly unremarkable. Um, yeah, Kevin's our favorite colonizer. <laughs> that like I like you don't necessarily add anything to this, but it's good that you're here. Um, like, I think it's clear that like the story wouldn't be able to c- progress as it did without Kevin there, but this isn't mm-hmm. his story and it's very clear and made aggressively clear that this is not his story um and yeah i, I just think that the show failed to do that it almost tried to make it like not like a buddy cop story but you know like a like a buddy sort of like duo back at it again yeah yeah in the book and i think that's so important too because for a lot of people who are grappling with deconstructing systems of oppression, specifically white supremacy, mm-hmm. their concern is almost always focused on the Kevins of the world. Exactly. How do we teach white people how to care about black people? And Octavia Butler was not worried about whether Kevin cared about Dana. She was worried about where Dana was. Mm-hmm. And I think that that you're you got it you got it exactly right. The show was very focused on Kevin's perspective of Dana's struggle, but it was not focused on Dana. No, and I think about that, and I think about the show too. Like, how much of that show was built on this current time of just like this this romanticizing of interracial relationships, right? Like, how much of that? Because no, I do not think Butler would have had that same perspective had the show been made even you know twenty years ago, whenever the book came out. I think the show would have been different. I wonder how much of that drew in the audience of it's a white man and a black woman, and 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 the romanticizing of that. You know, I th- I thought mm. about that as I was watching the show too. Very much so. It felt mm-hmm. like uh, if we have another season, it's going to be them with their white picket fence back home. Maybe a maybe a white and black picket fence. I don't know. Ew! I'm three fourths mess and one quarter spoon. I was about to say Obama <laughs> is a mulatto. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not yeah. only am I leaving that in. But I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that because I was thinking about that a little while ago about uh, the Quadroon Girl, about the way that so many people approach stories like Kindred. I'm talking, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about 
talking about the white folk, how they take mm. stories like Kindred and they try to adopt our oppression so that they can relate to the story. I had a commenter um, recently tell me that they liked they liked Kindred, but they it took them a long time to read it because they kept having to put it down because of the white guilt. And in my response to them, I told them, I don't want you to read stories like Kindred and to try to find your place in the story. I want you to read them from the outside looking in because the story isn't about you. It's not written to you. It's not written for your benefit. Just look in from the outside and look at Dana. And I don't think enough people are doing that. I think it is so important to people that they get space in the story of oppression so that they can be a part of the, the main stage production mm. of dismantling it instead of just trying to not become Rufus. Mm. Mm. Hold on. That's a lot. Let me just... A lot of mic drop moments in this episode. <laughs> That's how we do. <laughs> Talk to me about uh, Alice and Dana. Talk to me about their relationship. I don't know. I'm still thinking about the... We can take a minute. Oh, my God. Yeah, please take a minute. Oh, man. You really are making me want to reread the book. Um, ooh, okay. Dana and Alice. I'm trying to remember the intricacies of their relationship. Um, but I think it was another aspect of the story that was just like, oh, wow, that hurts. Because, again, you mm -hmm. know how this ends, especially with mm -hmm. the way that the intimacy grows between the two of them, but also grows between mm -hmm. Dana and Rufus. There's no way for that to end without that betrayal. So as you watch yeah. them grow closer and closer that betrayal hurts even more. Yeah. And betrayal feels not nuanced enough of a word because we yeah. we know that like it was an impossible decision to make, but you know, yeah. Imagine being from Alice's perspective, there's no other way to see that other than betrayal. No, for sure. And for context listeners, Alice is um, Dana's maternal ancestor. Um and I just can't, and it's so fascinating to me too, because going back to that original commenter that I referenced who thought that Kindred was stupid because Dana's decisions didn't make sense to him. It is so easy to know what you would do mm -hmm. from 2024. Okay. It is so mm -hmm. easy to know what you would do from 2024 in a white male body. Um, but I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do if I was placed in a situation where I have to like growing up as a black person in America, we regularly think about those nameless, faceless ancestors. We know mm. that if we do the work to look for them, they are just a number in a box next to a white mm. man's name. They don't have a name. They don't have an identity. They don't have a history. They are a number and a gender next to a white man's name. Mm -hmm. And the thought of having them named, of seeing their face, of watching them grow, of watching them love, of watching them chase after marriage and then flee for their life and then be captured and go from a free black woman to a slave to know I'm the only person that they trust. And now the only way that I get to exist is if I betray them in the worst possible way. I don't know what I would do from 2024. Oh yeah. I choose to not exist, but from 1840, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so important when reading Octavia Butler's work and all, honestly, all black literature mm -hmm. is to not approach it 
with the understanding that you're going to have an answer. Cause I, I rarely read black books and know what I would do. No, but I think that's, that's part of the, the experience of reading, reading books, you know, certain books. And I, you know, I do think when I, when I read, especially with Kendra, like I sat with it for a while, you know, and kind of Lonnie, I'm kind of, you know, your experiences, you're hearing Michael talk about it and I mean, a little bit of my experience as well. You know, when you're reading that book, it does, it just, it's like a rush of emotions, like all the things that are happening. And so for me, it wasn't any experience of reading it in a couple hours. It took me like a few weeks to really just like process through what I was reading, you know? Um, and as I'm hearing you talk now, as I'm here having this discussion, again, I'm having this experience of just like, just processing through it mm. again. Um, it's powerful powerful work i can't imagine and it, it's so wild to me too that she did this in 210 pages oh uh, yeah i know like I with know. everything we're talking about i just know there are people listening that think this is a 700 page book mm -mm. like <laughs> every page broke my spirit every single page and that's what i one of the many things that i love about octavia butler uh me and michael were talking a bit ago about short stories and Michael, you can kind of correct the quote if I'm wrong, but Michael was essentially saying that like, it's hard for him to get into short stories because you can't really, you know, unpack a lot within five pages. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking about how much I unpacked uh, with a lot of Octavia Butler short stories, specifically uh, she has a short story title titled uh, Speech Sounds that I love because it was able to put into words and put into a story a lot of my feelings around like hierarchy and like I'm an anarchist and I'm making my entire personality so like it meant a lot to me um but that's just how she writes there's so much meat mm. and goodness and so much to be learned and just thought about in however many words she puts on the page we talked about uh the different relationships that are seen in kindred and how like it could be seen as like a really sick and twisted romance story um that was through a, a lot of discussion that please don't take that out of context but <laughs> um it like there was so much that we unpacked in 210 pages we had weeks worth of discussions. Yeah, decades worth of discussions at this point, like entire entire college courses mm -hmm. around this woman's work and none of her books are a reasonable length. <laughs> They're all this tidy and compact. And it's, and it's, it's so fascinating to me too. We were talking about the way that Octavia Butler, like everybody, everybody heralds her as, you know, a, 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 an inspirational voice in science fiction. But like, if we're taking an honest look at her legacy, they didn't let her in. She had to build an entire genre from the ground up so that she could be heard. And, and it's, it, it just speaks to the way that it just speaks to the black experience as a whole, constantly being put into this position where we have to create new spaces, adjacent spaces, if you will, that then become the standard for the space we were never allowed into to begin with. Like everybody pretends like they were, they were in love with Octavia Butler as a science fiction icon when y'all didn't let her in. Y'all did no. not, to this day, y'all don't give her her flowers. Even the even though there's an entire genre that is inspired by her, which a man gets credit for, but Octavia, Octavia Butler built that, that genre. 
And there is an entire generation, two generations now of black writers who are changing the face of the planet because of the legacy she left in 210, 305 pages. It's wild to me. Yep. You had said earlier, Cece, um, you were talking about, when you were talking about Alice and Dana, you had talked about her developing a relationship with Dana at the same time that she's developing a relationship with Rufus and that turning into no choice but to betray Alice. Can you talk about the conflict that we experienced as Black readers watching her relationship with Rufus be something real? Because she knew who he was. Listeners cannot see how excited I am by this question. I, uh, I'm pretty sure I wrote one of my papers for this class on <laughs> this concept. I am very big on Black Americans that are descendant from African slavery really wrestling with our place in history and understanding the way that both our Africanness and our Americanness have cemented our place here. Um, my entire senior thesis was about how I oftentimes feel like as African Americans, we forget that whether we like it or not, being in this land ruled by these people has had an effect on us. And we project that in a lot of different ways that do nothing but harm each other for it. And I think a lot of that has to do with shame. I think um, one of the other things that we talked about in this class is the way that this book kind of exemplifies the way that African-Americans have to wrestle with the shame of slavery. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about, you know, like Hebrew Israelites and um, we're the original people of America and like those whole people who try and remove their ancestry from slavery. I think that comes from a place of being ashamed of the fact that your ancestors were enslaved in the first place. But in this book with Dana wrestling with Rufus quite literally wrestling with Rufus, she has to wrestle with the fact that he is as much of a, he is as much a part of her as Alice is. Mm. And that sucks. That hurt my mixed spirit. (laughs) That Mm. sucks. And you can hate it as much as you want to, but the only thing that you can do about it is grieve it. Because that's the only way you're going to move forward. It's the only way you are going to be able to exist actually is to just grieve the fact that you are only here because some fucked up shit happened before. And that brings me to something that you said just a couple of days ago in conversation that so, so much of our failure to dismantle the systems that we use to oppress one another is wrapped up in the fact that we have not learned how to grieve the things that we have lost. Much of white supremacy is in white people not grieving the fact that they have lost their culture. And there is so much of that in this story of not just, because like people hear the premise of this book and they're like, oh, it's trauma porn. No, it's not. It's therapy. It is therapy. I grieved in a way that I didn't know I needed to while reading this book. 
Like mm-hmm. it, it forced me to wrestle because once again, for so many of us, our ancestors and therefore our trauma is a number on a page. It's not real to us, but the effects of it are. So at some mm-hmm. point we need to put a name and a face to it and we need to grieve that name and that face. We need to come mm-hmm. to terms with it. We need to face it head on and wrestle with it. And this book does that. She has no choice mm-hmm. still. Um, so I love that. She didn't just wrestle with what happened to her, to Alice. She also wrestled mm-hmm. with the fact that she has a real relationship with Rufus and he is the one who does it. Mm-hmm. That's devastating. She is the one who does it. Even more devastating. You ate with that, Cece. <laughs> Thanks, I did. Yeah, I can listen to you talk all day, Cece. I, w- I want to read the paper you wrote. <laughs> I see if I can find it. I guess I have to read this book now. No, you do have to read this book. We're going to read it together. I, I, There's no circumstance where the four of us don't read Kindred together now. Like it's No, I, we definitely do. I think a question that I have is one that we probably haven't really wrestled with before and one that didn't get wrestled with in the story. It's what happens to Dana and Kevin? How do you, like, how do you, like, I know that for me, I am not the same after reading that story. There are not a lot of books that have fundamentally changed me, but Kindred fundamentally changed me. What happened to Dana? So Dana and Kevin, can you remind mm. me who they are again? Yep, Dana is the main character. She is the the black woman from the modern times who goes back and becomes a slave. And Kevin is her husband, and he goes back and becomes an abolitionist when they're separated. He's white, and he's white, but he yeah. becomes an abolitionist. Okay, that's good news. Um, yeah. What happens to them after? Do they end up going back to regular times? Yes. If he was an abolitionist, not you getting turned on by Kevin. No, but I don't know. I mean, no, that would do something for your marriage, though. If you went back, became a slave, and your husband took the right side. I'd be like, okay, I don't have to worry about you, like, coming slave master or something. Right. I'm off white people forever if I go back and become a slave. (laughs) You know, actually, now that you said that, but I don't know. That's hard. I mean, if we went off the base off the series, they're gonna go off into this fairy tale land of of happiness and butterflies and rainbows, probably. I was watching an episode of um, I think it's called Root Finders. I think that's the name of mm-hmm. it. And while they were finding her ancestors, the slave ancestor they found was her grandfather. And like mm-hmm. we are raised to believe this lie that slavery was like eons. Like you know what I mean? Like a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And it's like, there are people alive who spoke to their slave ancestors. Mm-hmm. She talked about, oh, grandfather didn't tell me that. You spoke to mm-hmm. that, that messed me up. And mm-hmm. like, I can't even imagine what that was like for that first generation of people to come out of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that really forces me to wrestle with that too. The fact that the the legacy of liberation that was built for me wasn't built for me by Abraham Lincoln. It was built for me by the same people that were forced to build America. Ooh. It was, that legacy being stolen from them is another part of our trauma, is another thing that we have to grieve and wrestle with. Before the episode uh, started, Michael asked me if I was a pan-Africanist. Um, not sure why, but, you know, <laughs> random conversation started. Um, and... Uh, as much as I am one, I, I I do believe that there is something, whether psychological or emotional or spiritual, that connects all people across the diaspora. Um, I think a lot about the conversation of, um, you know, quote unquote, returning back to the homeland 
um, and what that looks like. Um, but I was having a conversation with a friend a while ago and she, we've actually had this conversation multiple times about feeling like you are abandoning the home that was built for you. Yeah. Feeling like my ancestors, my great grandparents, my grandparents, Mm. (laughs) blood, sweat, and tears went into making sure that I had a place here to call home even if they never got the recognition for building it, they built nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And that's such a, that's such a hard thing to wrestle with, with the the tension between they wouldn't have chose this life and, but they still Mm -hmm. bled for it. They still fought for it. They still spent generations living and working and sweating and dying for it. And yeah, there is a part of me that's like, I, I don't know that if I had the choice, I would want to let go of the things that they bled and died for. What do you mean when you say that? Like if we could all just get up and find a happy place in Africa to live. Hmm. And what does that mean to to just uproot ourselves and go somewhere else when this country was built on the backs of Mm. our ancestors? I think there's that too. And like for me, obviously, there has to always be a conversation about indigenous and black Mm -hmm. solidarity um, Mm -hmm. because this land was stolen. This land was stolen mm-hmm. from indigenous people. And then it was built on the backs and blood of black people. Yep. And like, for me, I imagine, I regularly, when I read books like Kindred, um, I regularly imagine what would the world look like if we could reclaim the solidarity that our ancestors fought for. I appreciate the little moment that uh, Butler threw in when Dana and Kevin first travel back together for the first time. Um, or I guess they only travel back together once. Um, Kevin suggests, well, we could just we could just go out west and we could try and build a life out there until we figure this out. Um, and Dana says, no, they're doing the same thing to indigenous mm. people just over there. Um, like there is not a better mm. life for me at least out there you different story but yeah it's it's shit everywhere it's mm-hmm. interesting just mm-hmm. that you say that because i think even now like the same thing you know friends that like move to other states yeah. and they're like oh well you should just move out here and like it's a better life for you it is an unsafe life for me yeah. right and possibly worse. No, for yep. real. A friend who wanted to like move across country, like have all of our families move. And I don't remember what state it was, but I looked it up and I was like, there's like 11,000 black people Mm-mm. in that whole state. No, I'm not coming mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You talk about the privilege of being able to uproot yourself and not have to Google or look up how many, what percentage of black indigenous or whatever, you know, like the privilege of just being able to do that. Cause I've thought about that too. Some of my white friends where they just like, oh yeah, we, we, we're going to move here or there's better therapy jobs in this state. And I'm, but it might be better for you. So I'm going to stay right where mm-hmm. I'm at, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have learned how to navigate and survive this mm-hmm. space. Right here. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that is such a difference and even, and, and not just in life, but like even in Dana and Kevin's relationship to the past is that mm-hmm. they're both fighting for the same thing, but mm-hmm. one of them got to choose to. Ooh. Hey. And they didn't get a choice. Mm. 
Oh, yeah. And I think about that a lot about the way that engaging with my white friends who have the same goals as me, they care just as much about the liberation mm -hmm. of marginalized people. Um, but for them, they are navigating through life on how can I position myself to succeed at my goals? And I am navigating through life and how yes. can I survive? Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's and different. Mm-hmm. It is different. Mm -hmm. It was something you just said, I don't remember, but like it had to do with moving places, but just thinking about like the different types of racism, because I know I know the type of racism from where I live. And I've had to learn how to mm -hmm. navigate that racism. Right. But if I moved somewhere else, yep. it's different. And I don't, I don't understand mm -hmm. it. And so I'm putting myself mm -hmm. at risk there too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder what that was like for Kevin. Um, but as I was reading it, I didn't give a crap. This is, you know, a year later, I'm now wondering how Kevin experienced all of this. But at the time I'm like, Negro, you can literally just go pretend to be a poor person and get a job. <laughs> like, yeah, no one is going to question you. You can do whatever you, and that's literally what he does. He does whatever he wants and he just happens to make good choices, but he does whatever he wants. And like, for me, mm -hmm. there's a part of it. And like, I know, I know why people be getting frustrated with us because we, we do not be clapping for them. We don't clap for them. Um, but like, how can I, how can I clap for you when you can literally just decide if you care today or not? Something that we exactly. talked about in class is, um, some of the parallels that you can see between Rufus and Kevin. Um, and part of those parallels is the ways in which at times Kevin tries, tries to, and or succeeds to, take choice away from Dana in leaping to get to her when she travels back he takes a choice away from her because she specifically said don't touch me get away from me and he still goes after her their relationship is hinged on the fact that he was like hey why don't you leave the thing that you're doing and work for me um and you see it's small and it's definitely not in to the same magnitude that Rufus's, for lack of a better, more eloquent term, overbearing white supremacy um, shows up, but it's still in those small things in which you are trying to make choices for this woman who has to already told you what her decision is. I was just thinking, just even thinking about that, I think it suggests the difference between, you know, the explicit and implicit ways, you know, that racism and discrimination show up, right? Doesn't mean one is better or worse than the other, they're both happening, right? Yeah. So when you when you speak of, when, when you were talking about that, that's what it came to mind. And it makes me think too of like, yes, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend like there haven't been no advances. There have been advances, yeah. things have grown, mm -hmm. things have gotten better. But the fact that Kevin still has the privilege to do those things tells me that the advancement is that the system of oppression is not as successful in turning people into monsters, not that they are not capable mm -hmm. of being monsters. And I think that's something mm -hmm. that we've seen since 2020 is that there are more and more white people who are capable of being turned into the same kind of monster that Rufus is. Mm -hmm. They just haven't mm -hmm. been yet. And that mm -hmm. is scary. There's a moment that it's arguably one of my favorite moments in the book. I simply just 
love all acts of solidarity. Um, I cannot remember these characters' names, um, but it's all of the other women that Dana meets. And yeah, at one point in time, um, one of the women essentially tries to snitch on Dana. Um, I think yeah. Dana tries to get away and she snitches on her and it like foils the plan. Um, mm-hmm. And the next time you see her, it is basically implied that uh, the the other women had a, had a come to Jesus meeting with her. <laughs> um, and, and they Indeed. laid upon her some holy hands. Um, Hallelujah. To, to, to pray some sense back into her body. <laughs> um, did we have any thoughts? How often do we see this where marginalized people find themselves in a position where they feel it is in their best interest to turn on everybody else in order to garner the favor of some white person? Um, yeah. Makes me think of Candace Owens and... I'll tag her. Let her know. Because, you know, proximity to whiteness gives you privilege. So it's, quote unquote, easier to exist in this society if you are closer to whiteness. If you have access to white people, then you have access to some of the things that they have and, and the places that they go and the things that they can do that if you don't uh, find yourself around them or are um, assimilating into whiteness, you might, you might never reach those places or you'll have to claw your way there. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. so true because if you think about every black major politician, if you think about the majority of the largest uh, voices for social justice in social media spaces mm-hmm. anyway, they do all got white spouses. If nothing against that. Not judge anybody for mm-hmm. a interracial relationship. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah, enjoy your, enjoy your white meat. But mm-hmm. there is a conversation <laughs> to be had there about how proximity helps us or not even helps us because the benefit isn't actually there. Um, but how no. it gives us the perception of safety. But back to what Cece was talking about, the way that we do not allow you to be comfortable in that. Because one thing about Black mm-hmm. people, if we see a self-hating Negro, we're going to mm-hmm. help you hate. We're going to help you hate yourself. We're going um, <laughs> to... The book, they laid hands in the TikTok comment section. We summon one another, and then we have a community mm-hmm. roast. Um, and it's just so fascinating mm-hmm. to me how how quick we are. And, it, and it, it, it's so interesting, too, because they, they'll call us cannibals for that. They'll be like, you don't talk to white people. Yeah. Because why are you cannibalizing? Because you're a cancer, Negro. You're yeah. a cancer. I I think about that, too, just just based off how where you live, right? So we've talked a lot about, like, Midwest versus South versus, you know, wherever you might be. And I wonder about the... Black people who have this internalized racism, a lot of them are coming from places where there just was no other Black people to lay hands on them to correct it, right? And so how much, we have social media today to do that for people, but there's so many instances where you're surrounded by whiteness, this is your way of surviving, right? To like, you know, speak to assimilation, you know, and other, and other things. So 
man, it's powerful. <laughs> it's powerful. It is. And like, and listeners, if you're a white listener, please don't think we're trying to tell you that black people are no. beaten into correct thinking. That's not what we're saying. No. We're saying that community makes a difference. And mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of the black people that are out here being cancers to the black community are isolated from having community. That's why a lot of them are mixed people with white mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. we are systematically turned into weapons against our community. Mm-hmm. Yep. Man, that's some good stuff. The white meat joke. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> you saw I had to cut my camera off. I was like, I can't. So, Lonnie, are you picking up this book immediately? Yeah, Michael, I am. And after after Lonnie has had a chance to read the book, um, we definitely have to get back together and uh, finish off this conversation. I'm going to read it again, too, um, because I really love your question, yeah. Cece, about some of the more minor characters. I don't want to say minor because, and, and that, that brings me back to what we said earlier about names and numbers on a page. Mm. Those, those were not, those shouldn't be numbers and names. You know what I mean? Mm. They should matter. So I, I do want to go back and read it and think more about that, but we'll have to come back and do another episode. Um, but before I, before I kind of bring this to a close here, can you each just kind of tell me a little bit about what Octavia Butler's legacy means to you? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I've heard a lot of really good things about her work. And although I haven't read it, um, I remember the first time that I ever heard of her. I was at, um, I went for Martin Luther King where I grew up, or Martin Luther King Day, where I grew up. Um, they would do a march and we would catch the train. So it was like the freedom train and march and all that stuff. Um, and then at mm-hmm. the end, they had like a whole like black expo. And um, I saw her books there. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like raving about it. And I was like, oh, like, what is that? Whatever. And so that's when I kind of learned about her um, from my friend and the person who was like, you know, selling the books and all of that kind of stuff. And um, I feel like even though I haven't read it, everyone that I know has only said good things and it has shaped their mm-hmm. um, not experience in life, but it, it's kind of shaped how they see things after reading um, her books. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to read it, and uh, I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't buy those books then. Acknowledgement is the first step. <laughs> that, um, for me, I think Octavia, her work has really just impacted, I mean, my worldview in general. As somebody that grew up in the Midwest, you know, predominantly surrounded by a lot of uh, white people, and then through the education system, we didn't have access to these types of books. They weren't pushing these types of books. They were pushing, you know, the classics, whatever that means, Right. And so for me, when I was able, as somebody growing up that loved fantasy and sci-fi and never seen uh, an author that looked like me, that had experiences similar to mine, that was hard. And, and then finding her work and seeing there's a Black woman, we talk about windows and mirrors. This was a mirror moment for me, right? To be able to see this, this individual, this woman, write this, this book that defied all just genres, like genre, I don't know. It's just, she just is a, an amazing writer. The way that she can touch on race and power and structure and and just all the things in the book and still it's not these aren't thick books like you talk about these are these are books that are small you know and she's able to really write and you can tell that she loves it and leaves 
a huge impact on every reader. I've never heard anybody speak poorly of her. And if they do, that's blasphemy. Um, I just really love her works. And I'm still work making my way through all of them. I still have a few books that I haven't read because I'm scared to finish them. <laughs> but uh, she, I'm, I just feel like I'm gonna have a whole left, I don't know. But uh, no, she, she is definitely, definitely one of my all time favorite authors that has had a huge impact on me as a, as a person. So Octavia Butler first came into my life when I was in eighth grade. Uh, I did a Black History Month project for my ELA class. Um, so I did my project on her. And I just remember reading all these great things about her. The one thing that has always stood out mm -hmm. to me about her is how she got into writing. She watched a really bad sci-fi movie and was like, I can do better than that. And, and just did. I just think she's such a mm -hmm. G. Like, she's such a goat. Like, she does things just because she can but mm -hmm. it is still the most impact that any writer has had on my life and I was an English major mm -hmm. like I'm an English teacher and so like books and literature and literary analysis like that's kind of my bread and butter <laughs> so to have an mm -hmm. author that has really shaped and molded the way I see the world um, through sci-fi, which isn't even my bread and butter. Like, I'm, like, give me, like, magic and spells and wizards and dragons. And, like, but um, she has been able to put words to things that I didn't realize I was thinking until I saw words put to it. It, it's yes it's insane I, she octavia e butler has changed my brain chemistry for the better and i am forever grateful for the 13 year old me that stumbled across her name on a quick little google search and the mm -hmm. 20 something year old me that saw her name on a course list and said let me take that one she, I, I will mm -hmm. never be the same because of the things that she put into this world. And I know that the world will never be the same because of the things that she put into this world. Also, Loki, pretty sure she was psychic uh, because Purple and Sower is like crazy. Uh <laughs> I was just about to say, somebody said, I'm sorry to cut you off, but somebody said she was not a writer. Octavia e. Butler was not a writer. She was a prophet. And I... <laughs> I don't think they're wrong. <laughs> like, this man was connected in a way that is scary. Uh, so, <laughs> very much, I'll have what she's having, please, and thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for me, my experience was pretty similar. She was affecting my life long before I knew who she was. Um, mm -hmm. The things that she wrote shaped not just Black writers of this, of this age, but all writers. I think literature itself mm -hmm. was shifted by her career um, all while people mm -hmm. were not making space for her. And I think for me, mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest impacts I, I have from her is not just learning how to grieve blackness and celebrate blackness, mm -hmm. but also learning what it looks like to take up space in an industry mm -hmm. that is very adamant on not allowing me to. 
whenever I am trying to figure out how to make space in publishing, I think of Octavia Butler because she was doing it before there was any space. Um, and she did it so successfully that they had to recognize that she won. And I'm all about that. I'm all about that. She didn't just make space. She won. And I'm looking forward. I'm going to read Kindred again with you, Lonnie. And I'm looking forward to um, bugging you all to come do another episode with us so that we can. Because, um, like, we did not. We didn't even touch the amount of conversations that we could have from this. Yeah. And it's really? already the longest episode we've we've recorded. Yeah. So those of you listening, um, look forward to a part two um because i'm pretty sure it's happening and um as always thank you so much for being here we we couldn't do this without you um as you guys know we're not just trying to have a podcast we want to change the world and we need you for it and we're so grateful you're here and we look forward to being a menace next time bye everybody bye